Please turn in your Bibles to Romans uh, 8. Here, I may henceforth be known as the uh, the Forrest Gump preacher because I think this is the second time I've come without uh, letting my sermon text and title be known. So it's like a box of chocolates, you know, when, when the Pastor York comes, you don't know what you're going to get. Uh, so I pardon my tardiness for not getting it in in time. But we will uh, look at Romans 8. And um, as we prepare to look at this, I'll just go ahead and let you know that um, I'm, I'm going to be exegeting this passage in part, in, in the book, uh, especially verse 29, one particular aspect of it. But in one sense, this the sermon may be, uh, and I'm all, I usually am always a consecutive exegetical preacher, it may be a little bit more on the topical side. We'll get to the one of the core nuggets in 29. And then I'd like to take some other scripture passages which illuminate and fill out the, the beautiful uh, message found in verse 29. And so even though I say the word topical, don't get anxious because it will be rooted in the text of scripture, that topic. We will examine this text and a few others even, again, that will help illuminate uh, perhaps a much neglected thought, but one which uh, I cannot understand how it could be more central to the Christian life. Uh, the sermon for, the title for tonight's sermon is uh, The Cross-Bearing Christian. You might think, uh, given this text, that it's going to be about predestination. In verse 29, we will talk about predestination. But we will talk about a goal or a focus of God's predestinating uh, love. To us, And so, let, without further ado, let me read verses 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that we, that he, might be the firstborn among many brothers. May God bless now not only the reading, but the preaching of his word. And as I've already alluded to, the title of tonight's sermon is The Cross-Bearing Christian. You may not immediately see the cross in this text, but I assure you it is very much present and in the mind of Paul, and we'll see that in just a moment. And uh, so as we'll be considering the cross and the way in which the Lord calls his people to embrace the cross of Christ, I'll give you one word. That's kind of a few words tied together to sum up the theme. Let me give you one word that sums up the theme. It's good if the pastor can summarize the message in one word. Uh, the word here is the word cruciformity. Have I used that with you before? Maybe I have. I, I use it fairly often. Maybe you've not heard of it. But it's a very useful word, the word cruciformity. What does it mean? Well, crusa means cross, form, form, or shape. Shaped by, shaped into the cross of Christ. Before I begin to delve into that in the text, let me give you a little biographical information as to why uh, this is uh, such a something I'm so passionate about. Actually, this, this is a message which, uh, believe it or not, I delivered as a charge uh, to uh, Thomas Tack up in Rio Rancho the Friday evening. I was given the, the responsibility to give the charge, and you may think, why are you charging us like you would a pastor? Well, 
this aspect uh, of the call to the pastor, although it is to be exemplary in ministers and elders and deacons, it's it's exemplary and it's but it's for every Christian, just like the many uh, passages in Timothy and Titus which give the qualifications for elder. Every Christian is to have those, but the the ones who are serving simply in a perhaps in uh, in a more uh, absolutely recognizable and non-debatable way. So even though I charged uh, Pastor Tack to to, uh, to hear this message, it is very appropriate to come to all believers as well. And the reason why I am so passionate about this is because uh, the way that I began pastoral ministry, and as I began pastoral ministry, um, I thought about cross of Christ, and I knew that uh, the Lord wanted me in some way to uh, share in the wonderful cross of Christ, but I did not uh, really begin to understand how thoroughly uh, he wanted me, at least in the ministerial role, but I think also, to be honest with you, just my baseline Christian faith, to embrace the cross of Christ. And as I entered into the ministry, I found that ministering to God's people was very different than one might expect when one is in seminary and, uh, you know, maybe seminarians have problems, but they don't all bring them to you, do they? <laughs> and some of the pastors know that uh, who are here tonight uh, that when you first start the ministry, you find out that yeah, it's not what you expect. People are not all sitting around wanting to talk theology all day like you do uh, at seminary. And um, uh, that's not to say that it isn't very useful to, to discuss theology, because you still bring them that. Uh, but they may not be interested in it at, for, at first. And you find out that for many people, their lives are falling apart. And as you try to serve these people, uh, sometimes it's not received all that well. Uh, sometimes, um, in fact, you may be uh, attacked for bringing them the gospel and what that gospel entails for their life. Sometimes you may be slandered for that. And so I think I, I probably kept saying to myself, you know, this can't be normal. This is not normal. Something's wrong with this church. There really was nothing wrong with the church. I mean, one sense you could say there's plenty wrong with it, just like every church, but not more than any other church. What was really wrong with something uh, in me. You see, I think I was still very deficient in this understanding of the call to embrace the cross of Jesus Christ, but the Lord Jesus is very patient. Very patient indeed, saying, Adam, uh, your ministry must be rooted in prosperity. Adam, your ministry must be carried out in the weakness of the cross. Well, how do the scriptures proclaim the centrality of cross-bearing? How does that show up in this text? Well, again, let me turn your, your eyes and your minds to Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Predestination. Seems like it's the Reformed and the Calvinist favorite topic, right? We always want to talk about predestination all day long. That vexes at some people. Uh, but uh, the predestination spoken about here is, is quite interesting. It's a not, it is not a predestination which is faceless or detailless or has no particulars to it. 
It is not, as the philosophers would say, a tabula rasa, a blank slate. Right? It is something very particular, very detailed. God says that he chose us to, to be, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Which, of course, should lead us immediately to ask, what is the image of the son? What's the image of the son that he's predestined us to be conformed to? Well, uh, when you look at the rest of Romans 8, that image of the son becomes very clear. It comes into focus. If you look earlier up in chapter 8, uh, in verse 3, the son is the one who came first to be condemned in the flesh. But then in verse 11, though condemned in the flesh, he was raised from the dead. Humiliation, then exaltation. That's the image of the Son that is really brought into view in Romans chapter 8. Now, when speaking of the Christian being conformed to the image of God's Son, again, I've already told you it's there in Romans 8, but how do you know and how can I convince you that that's the image that Paul wants you to understand that you have been predestined to be conformed to? What's the proof of that in the text? And I believe the easiest way to see that is in verse 17. In verse 17, Paul spells out our predestination unto that kind of particular image of the Son. When he says in verse 17 that we have adoption in that very same Son and our heirs with him, what? Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Oh, that is a, a wonderful key and clue of what Paul is getting to here. We are being, we have been predestined to be conformed to that image of the cross-bearing son, and the son who then, after his cross-bearing, wears the crown of glory. Do you see how significant, profound that is? The Lord has predestined that. He has he has from all eternity determined that you and I would have the great privilege of sharing in the image of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't replicate his work, to be sure. We're not replicating the work. But we are imaging it. And that is very significant. But there are other passages, and I want to bring to light some of these other passages, which begin to illuminate this uh this profound call uh, to be pre uh, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of, uh, of the Lord's Son, our cruciformity in particular. I could spend time on the other side of that, and I'm going to bring that into view, our, our, our being sharing in his glory, but I particularly want to emphasize our sharing in the cross, our cruciformity. One passage that is very helpful is Luke 22, uh, verse 28. I'm going to give you a number of passages. You may, may want to make reference to these. Luke 22, 28. Here Jesus is before his disciples, the apostles. And what does he say to them? How does he identify them? Who are they? He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. That's who they are. That's who the leadership of the people of God are, and I think the entire congregation of the Lord certainly no less than that. Christian, 
Do you see your Christian life as a life where you are standing shoulder to shoulder with the Lord Jesus Christ in his trials? See, because the trials that the Lord has assigned to you, uh, you may not selfishly take them on just as your trials. You see, as you come to receive those in Christ, you are sharing in his trials. They are illuminated and made meaningful valuable to you as you are united to and sharing in. You are those who stay and stand with Christ in his trials. This cruciform identity assigned to you in Christ is also made very clear and illuminated in another passage, Colossians 1.24. This is a, a marvelous passage, maybe a passage a little confusing at first. Colossians 1.24. Uh, Paul says this, Now I rejoice in my suffering for you. Notice a number of times the, the, the word joy and sufferings is mentioned, and, and not just tolerated sufferings. He, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I think if any other person than the Apostle Paul had said that uh, he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, we'd probably be escorting that person right to the, the judgment uh, courts of the church, right? Uh, what do you mean, Paul? Uh, something was lacking in Christ's afflictions? Were the afflictions of Christ uh, defective in some way? Well, no, of course not. Uh, but what this passage shows us is that the afflictions of Christ are, are more than just the atoning afflictions of Christ. If we are thinking about the atoning afflictions of Christ, where Christ, and this is at the very heart of the gospel, Christ stands in our place on the cross as the sin bearer, then that can't be filled up, that can't be filled in or improved upon in any way. It's finished, as we just heard from the book of Hebrews. But there is more to the afflictions of Christ than, than that they are atoning. They become, as Christ suffers for us, his life becomes the very pattern for our life. His life spills over into our life so that the details of his life need to be, uh, if I say instead of filled up, uh, filled in. Filled in in our life. And so you can see that to the degree that that's not filled in in our lives, as we're not conformed to the image of that crucified one, there is something lacking. There's something that let, is yet remaining to be filled in in our lives. Amazingly, Paul says that these sufferings that, that need to be filled in our lives, you see, they're not really just for us as individually either. I mean, it. That's a great privilege as an individual to share in the sufferings of Christ, isn't it? But it's not really just for us. Paul says it's for the sake of his body. That is the church. In other words, because your suffering is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, and it is for his body, it is for the church, uh, your suffering cannot be done in isolation. It's not as if you go into your closet to uh, fill up the afflictions of Christ. 
You cannot be a good cross-bearer for Christ and embrace cruciformity in an individualistic way. It must be done in the context of the body of Christ. It must be done in, in fellowship and in, in joining hands with those who need you to um, lay down your life for them, not in an atoning way, but truly in a self-sacrificial, Christ-like way. Christian, in your life, walk with Christ in such a way that in the church, you are filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, insofar as his life spills over into yours and calls you to fill in the pattern that he has laid out before you. Consider some of the other language that Paul uses to further set forth this identity of uh, the Christian life, the cross-shaped life, the cross-bearing life, the cruciform life. Another passage we might consider is in Philippians 2. Uh, had it initially 14 through 17, but I think it's just 17 that I have here. Philippians 2, 17. Listen to this language. Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. You hear that language? Poured out as a drink offering. Where does that language come from? Well, you may be familiar with that language from the Old Testament. That is language... Uh, found uh, from the Torah, uh, particularly in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. God uh, specifies and prescribes various drink offerings. Now, again, it's very interesting, just like I was saying a minute ago, getting away from a kind of atoning sacrifice. Uh, the atoning sacrifices in the Old Covenant were the, the sin offering, the burn offering. The drink offering was not that, was it? It was a sacrifice of consecration where we are, we having now uh, uh, seen uh, the, what the Lord does for us in those other sacrifices. Uh, he gives himself to us and then we give ourselves back to him. That's the sort of sacrifice we're talking about. Not anything to, to atone or improve upon the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It's a sacrifice of consecration the drink offering is. But Paul says, well, that's our drink offering. It's still going on. That's what I'm doing as a Christian. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. Christian, do you understand that the nature of your Christian life that God has called you to in blessed union with your Savior is that you too should be poured out as a drink offering on, uh, uh, upon the sacrificial offering of the faith of those unto whom you minister. Doesn't that sound a lot like what we just heard? This sort of cruciformity is not done in isolation from others, and it is done particularly as you give yourself, as you allow yourself, maybe uh, give yourself to the pouring out of your life as a drink offering to serve and to bring about the good of others in the church. Is that your understanding that you too are to be poured out by the Lord as a drink offering? And is that understanding at uh, rock bottom of your understanding of the Christian life? Because really the New Testament is not saying that this is 
a peripheral part of the Christian life or a part of an aspect of the Christian life. It is really at the nuclear level, isn't it? If you just go to one of the very plain texts that says this, Jesus says throughout the Gospels, if you do not uh, take up your cross daily and deny yourself and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. You can't be it. To have me and my atoning work, my saving work for you, is then is then to take on my life for yourself and for the good of the church. With regard to this language of a drink offering, it's very interesting. Uh, maybe you hadn't thought about that from Philippians. Uh, it is not a sort of one-off statement in Paul. He uses this language a number of times. In fact, he uses it again with Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 4, uh, the entire 1 through 6 is the passage which tells Timothy what is to do, you know, he's to do, um, uh, preach the word, of course, in season and out of season. As we skip on down, I think, into verse 5, he says, As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering. There for pastors is a call for that. and uh, Pray for pastors. and There's not uh, yet one here. We pray that you will receive a pastor who, who will endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And then look what he says. He says, for or because I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time for the depart and the time of my departure has come. Isn't that interesting? Uh, he says, uh, Timothy, do all these things, fulfill your duties, preach the word in season, out of season, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Why should he say that? Well, I think what he is doing there is he's encouraging Timothy. Paul's about to, to, to end his ministry, and he's telling Timothy, look, this is what Christian ministry, and again, really, Christian life is for every Christian to take this path, the path of being poured out in the service of the living God. Did Timothy understand that? I think that he did. I believe that he did. Christian, embrace the cross of Jesus Christ, not just as the cross which atones for your sins, and it is certainly that, first and foremost, but also as the cross which now directs and guides your life. It is the pattern of your life. You are to be conformed to the image of God's Son, which is first and foremost a cruciform image. Now, why do you think the Lord would choose to move you forward and to move the church forward seemingly uh, in this backward way, moving forward in reverse, as it were? Why do you think he would choose this path to advance us? Well, on the one hand, we can say simply to have the privilege of standing in solidaric union with our, with our Savior. What a blessed privilege it is. In Acts, those who were persecuted, they, they said they counted it a privilege to suffer for the name, to be identified with Christ through suffering. But I think also we may say that the Lord chooses this backward path, if we can put it that way, uh, so that you and I should not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. That is very much what Paul had in mind in 2 Corinthians 1.9, 
in that passage, he speaks of a, a harrowing experience, which we actually don't know exactly what it was. But he, he brings it up as the exemplar of, of his Christian life. And he says, regarding this experience, he says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Why does God, why has he predestined you? to be conformed to the cruciform image of Christ, so that you may rely on the resurrection power of Christ, that you may come to an end of yourself, knowing that that power to give your life unto death lays in the resurrection power that Christ gives to you. You see, so often you and I are tempted to think that uh, we can pull off the Christian life. You'd never say that, would you? But sometimes we think it, or at least we we, we act in such a way by, by maybe neglecting our our careful communion with Christ, thinking that, you know, the pastors, I'll confess, I'm guilty of that. And you get busy of the ministry, uh, the, the business of ministry, and you neglect the own feeding of your soul. And it will be to the pastor's great detriment but it will be to the Christian's great detriment, all of us, because we, we may not proceed in cruciformity in our own power. It is the resurrection. See, Christ, having been crucified, he's already entered into the power of a new life, and he gives us that life so that we may give up our lives back to him. Now, this is no more clearly demonstrated than in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, this idea that, that God gives us cruciformity calls us to that so that we may not rely on ourselves. Paul uh, says this when he pleaded to the Lord to remove the, the thorn from his flesh, whatever that was, the Lord Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, for his power is always they're understood as resurrection power. He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more. Boasting, rejoicing in weakness, boasting in weakness. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. But when I am weak, then I am strong. Oh, it doesn't sound quite right. Does it? How could there be? Because when you, when you are weak, when you can no longer rely on your own strength, and, and God brings you to rely on His power, the resurrection power of Christ, then you come to rest in true strength, real strength. It is not found in you and I, but it is found in our Lord. Now what these last two passages from 2 Corinthians teach us, uh, dear Christian brother and sister, is that the task and the privilege and the responsibility of cruci cruciformity, uh, though impossible by ourselves, as we are united to Christ, it is now possible. Never to be perfect in this life, but, but 
but possible and indeed absolutely necessary. You see, the resurrection life of Christ, as it, as you can think of Christ's resurrection life already coursing through your veins as you possess him, that and that alone is the thing which will compel you to love not your life, even unto death. Revelation 12, 11. And so again, I said it a moment ago, but let me, let me uh, adjure you, really, in the Lord to never... Uh, become so busy in your life that you that your personal communion with the living Christ fades into the background because you need that at every moment to follow in this path that he calls you to. You need it and you will not capable you will not be capable of standing with Christ in his trials unless you are communing with the resurrected Christ. you will not be capable of filling up the afflictions of Christ. Unless you commune with the living Christ. You will not be capable of pouring out your life as a drink offering. Unless you possess the Christ who is alive. and is indeed himself the life-giving spirit. It is communion with this resurrected Christ that Paul has in mind in Romans 12.1. When he tells Christians to present their bodies as what? Living sacrifices. That always puzzled me. Living sacrifice. What does that mean, living sacrifice? Well, I'm alive, right? But that's not what Paul has in mind. Rather, he's thinking back to the one who earlier in Romans, he says, the life he lives is Christ. The life that Christ lives, he lives to God. You are alive in him. You have the, the power of the living Christ in you. And as a living person, through, empowered by the living resurrection life of Christ, now you are able and content to present your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. What is to happen to you or to me if we decide, to, well, this is sort of interesting, but I, I don't really think that I want this. Do you think that God will simply say, well, I had a predestined plan to conform you to the image of my son and the crucifixion. But I suppose I can change that plan. <laughs> I'll give that. I'll come up with another plan. No, you see, he will keep that plan for you. The problem is, if is if we don't embrace that as our identity, if we don't if we don't accept it and embrace it and see it as our life and rejoice in it as Paul does, then then our Christian life will be a difficult one. It'll be one where we kick against the cross of Christ. The trials assigned to us by the Lord will no longer be the occasion for us to grow, and to come to an end of ourselves and to not rely on ourselves, but to rely on him who raises the dead. Better our trials will become an occasion for us to, to probably become bitter and angry and resentful and discouraged. In this sense, cross of Christ, you see, it's not something, and I said this a moment ago, but let me say it again, God just doesn't want you to tolerate the cross in your life. He doesn't want you to tolerate this call to cruciformity, to begrudgingly get by with it. Rather, he wants you, as you identify with the Lord Jesus, 
but to be it to have it be something even which you as we've seen Paul several times already celebrates in rejoices in and I'll put that before you once again we see it in Galatians 6:14 uh, Paul didn't like to boast in anything but he would boast in one thing Galatians 6:14 far be it from me to boast except except in the cross of our Lord and here he shows us that he really understands that uh, not just to be the atoning cross, but the, the cross that is not just for him, but that is now in him and directs him. For he says, uh, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross of Christ is the thing, is the place where he is crucified for you. But it is also the place where you are crucified to the world. And the world is crucified to you. Well, maybe it would be helpful if I closed simply with a few examples of what this looks like in the Christian life. Uh, how does that flesh itself out? How does our cruciformity uh, flesh itself out? Well, again, as I've said it before, but let me emphasize it yet again. None of us can be cross-bearers as sort of Christian islands, disconnected from others. If you want to be a good cross-bearer, you need to be involved in a deep way in serving in the lives of others. Why is it that people don't often want to do that, get involved in the lives of others? Well, I think I can tell you why. Getting involved in the lives of others has the potential to be difficult and to cause you pain. Almost, almost it's like some sort of a cross-bearing experience, right? Um, and as you as you get involved in the lives of others, it is very possible and likely, especially if you're trying to serve them in Christ, that they may misunderstand you, or that they may align you. They may even do something to offend you. And if you are, in fact, a person who is easily offended, Think about that, whether maybe that's not something to, to pray for help for, because I think it will be very difficult to make progress in your Christian life as a cross-bearer if you are easily offended. What are you going to do if someone gets close to you and you try to help them and they insult you? Paul says this, I read it a moment ago, but hear it again, maybe in a different way, 2 Corinthians 12.10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. When I am weak, then I am strong. Yeah. Content even with insults, content to be misunderstood. Now, what, we're, what I'm speaking about here is not that you should devote yourself to be a punching bag for others for the sake of that in and of itself, but realizing that as you're trying to help them, uh, they're... Others, maybe they're going to misunderstand you, and they may, you may have an insult or two. You just persevere, you keep going, because the hope is that through serving them and through displaying Christ and cruciformity to them, they may themselves be pulled into that and brought to a greater fidelity to Christ themselves. And you can bear that then. Instead of seeing, looking to have every wrong righted, Paul says this very interesting thing. I wonder how many American Christians really believe this. 1 Corinthians 6, 7. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? 
might be a very useful and helpful step in, in serving others and in ministry. You can take that thought on and realize that, you know, and, and one, one Christian said this to me, whenever somebody says to you to criticize you, they can't ever criticize you worse than the cross of Christ itself does, right? But the cross of Christ itself criticizes you so bad that it meant God's Son must suffer the wrath of hell for you. So what is the criticisms of others? Even if they are undeserved, the ones deserving upon you and me from the cross are far more severe. Your goal as you serve others is to see Christ formed in them. The same cruciform Christ that you have been predestined to be conformed to. You hope to see others conformed to. Paul speaks about this in Galatians 4.19. He says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, Paul likens himself to a mother who's uh, going to give birth uh, to, to what? Until I see Christ formed in you. And if you do, when, you, when you're ready to call a minister, call a minister who, who sees his job description as seeing Christ formed in you. But how are you and I to expect to see Christ formed in others if we are not willing to first see the cruciform Christ? Formed in us. Again, not that we are to be a punching bag or delight in such a thing, but that our lives may be used, that we may be uh, veritably poured out as a drink offering in the service of the church. And so let me just conclude by saying this uh, if you want to move forward in this cruciform life of the Christian, uh, simply see the needs of people in the church and seek to meet those needs. Find a need in the church and work to fill that need. I'll close with this paradoxical statement from 2 Corinthians 6, 8 through 10. Note the paradox of it. Again, I said before, why would God choose the backwards to go forwards? And yet he does. And going backwards is tremendously moving forwards in God's economy. Here he says this, speaking about the, the apostolic life, but again, it Spills over into all Christians. Uh, 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 he says that they are treated through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors, yet are true, as unknown, yet as well known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. And we do possess everything, more than that in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the great privilege of, from all eternity, not merely being predestined to be saved and to be delivered from wrath, but even more than that, predestined to be conformed to the image of your Son, the image of the cruciform and glorified one. We know that we may only give ourselves to cruciformity as we first possess the cross of Christ delivering us from our sin and the resurrection life of Christ empowering us unto his cruciform life. 
And we proceed forward, emptying ourselves, pouring out our lives, standing with Christ shoulder by shoulder in his trials, filling in in our lives what is lacking in his trials, so to speak, only because we possess the resurrection power of our Savior. And though we should come to give up everything in this life, if we have him and lose all, we still possess everything, and more than this world, in fact, can ever give us. And so encourage us with that uh, as we give ourselves freely and willingly and, re- and with joy. May our lives become useful and fruitful and glorifying to you. Amen. <laughs>